Amen. Let's open our Bibles together to Joshua chapter 17. Jay, brother, as you were telling that story, thinking about the stories you've told more recently and how God has answered your prayers in such amazing ways, I think either I don't find myself in the same kind of situations as you do, or I don't see his, I'm not looking for his hand as much. That is uh, by God's grace. May we be prayer warriors, all of us, and more aware of what he's doing. So this morning we're going to uh, cover Joshua chapters 15 through 20. I warned you of that last week. I'm sure you all read it carefully, poured over it. You've got all those hard-to-pronounce names down that I could call on any one of you to come up here and read those names. Uh, and, uh, but I'm not going to do that. Um, we're not actually going to look at everything in these sections. This is a continuation of what we saw last week. If you recall, if you were here, we talked about how God was distributing the promised land, the land of Canaan, to the Israelites. They had started conquering those lands, and God stopped in the middle of the, uh, the warfare and had Joshua distribute by lots the section that this tribe would get, and that tribe, and that tribe, even before they went in to conquer the rest of the land. And that's what chapters 15 through 19 are primarily concerned with. So as you read through those, you will see this tribe got that allotment, and so on. We're going to skip over most of it, but I want to highlight one aspect of it in chapter 17, and then we are going to look at something else in chapter 20. So chapter 17, in verse 13, it says, It came about when the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Now, if you've been tracking along with us, you remember that way back, 40 years prior to this, when God told them they were going to have the promised land, he said, these are the kind of wicked people that occupy that land. I'm going to use you as my instrument of judgment for their centuries of idolatry and so on, and you are to remove them completely, destroy them. We talked about that, right? It's hard. That's a, that's, those are heavy terms for us. Here we see... The Israelites were disobedient. They did not drive out all the Canaanites. In fact, they made covenants with them. This will come back to haunt them not too long in the future. Turn over a few pages or flip a few screens over to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1 we get a recap of what's been going on right before Joshua dies. Verse 27 says, But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Sheen and its villages. Skip down to verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. Verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nihalal. Verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Elab or Ajib or Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. I did not practice that. Verse 33. Nephli did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Bethanath. Verse 34. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris. And so on. Chapter 2. 
Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. So, Look at what happened here. You remember the first covenant that Israel made with one of these nations. It was with the, the people, the Gibeonites. Remember that? The Gibeonites tricked them. Remember the command was, you don't make any covenants with any of these nations that you're conquering. And the Gibeonites, remember they got the old stale bread and they dressed in old tattered clothes and they showed up and said, we come from way far off. And the Jews said, okay, well, since this is not a, a nearby nation that we're conquering, they come from far off, we will make a covenant with you. And then after they made the covenant, the Gibeonites said, nope, surprise, we live right over there. And the, the Jews were stuck. They had to keep their covenant they had made with the Gibeonites. So here's the, the first one. They were deceived into that covenant, but, but that's what they did. But you can see how that one failure to do what was right opens the door for more. And do you remember what the Gibeonites, what their, their part of the covenant was? Anybody? They were servants of, of Israel, right? That was the agreement. You be our slaves. So now imagine you're going into this section. God's given you, you're the Manessites, and God's given you this section, and you're to go in and drive out that section. And you think, ah, they seem like nice people. And I like servants, so maybe instead of killing them all, like God told us to, maybe we'll just do kind of like we did with Gibeon, and we will make them our servants. And the next tribe does the same thing, and they go in here and say, ah, they seem like nice people. Maybe, maybe it's not so bad the way they set it up. I'll, I'll here make a covenant with these people, and they can be our servants. And they think they're making wise decisions, and God shows up and said, you disobeyed me. I gave you clear commands and you disobeyed. And now my punishment for your sin is I'm going to let these people continue to live in your midst and they are going to lead you into their wickedness and then you're just going to bring more judgment upon yourselves. Do you remember when we looked at Romans 1? Sometimes God's response to our rebellion, to our sin, is to hand us over to more sin, which then deserves more punishment. And he says, Israel, these wicked nations are now going to be a snare. They're going to be a trap that you're going to get caught in. They're going to be a thorn in your side forever. And that's what we see through the rest of the book of Judges. They disobeyed God. They followed after the gods of Canaan. And they began to worship the Baals and the other idols of Canaan. Here are the people of God worshiping idols. And of course, that just incurs God's wrath. And we see that all through the rest of Israel's history with a few periods of time in between where they were a little more faithful. It has to beg the question of us, does it not? Where are we tempted 
are we tempted to enter into alliances with unbelievers? We can't avoid the Canaanites. We live among the Canaanites. The idols of Darwin, Marx, Freud, Hefner, etc., etc. We live among the idols. We, we live among a wicked people. We can't escape from that. We're, we're told to be in the world, not of the world. We, we, we have to live here. But we can avoid creating relationships, contractual relationships with, with unbelievers that might tempt us to sin against God. In fact, not only can we do that, we must do that. The Apostle Paul brings this very thing to the church at Corinth and says, do not enter into these kind of alliances. Chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, he says this. Yeah, that. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Some of your translations say, do not be unequally yoked. Now, my guess is every person in here has only heard this in the context of marriage. Believers, you're not allowed to marry unbelievers. That's true, but there's nothing in the context that is specific to marriage. He's not talking about marriage here. Now, marriage would be a good application, but this is broader, broader than that. In general, he says, do not be bound together. That, that, that's covenant language. Don't enter into a contract, into a, a binding agreement with unbelievers. Why? For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? You are righteous, and you're going to enter into a contractual partnership with people who are unrighteous, who are lawless? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? We're light. We can't be bound together with darkness. Next verse. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? It's another word for Satan. We don't sing harmony with the enemy. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Next verse. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see, we, we can't. We can't worship God and idols in the same building, in the, in, in the same group. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my, my people. Next verse. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Next verse. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You see, just like the Israelites had these covenant relationships with pagans that caused them to drift away from God, we are told here in the New Testament, watch out. And it doesn't mean we can't be friends. Of course we're going to be friends. We're, we're trying to convert these people. We're trying to evangelize with them. We, we have to work alongside them and live among them and that kind of thing. But where... Might we draw these alliances where there's some kind of a, a binding that now we're binding together with idol worshipers? I was thinking through and thinking, uh, you know, there's a, a variety of possibilities how this might play out. One is just hypothetically thinking of maybe a web designer. Imagine a guy who, uh, who learns how to code and he, he builds websites and he He's offered a partnership with another guy who's a web designer, and the other guy is not a believer. He is a believer. 
And that sounds great. Okay, we're just going to go into business together and, and draft the contract for how this business is going to operate. They have equal partnership in it. And then they cruise along and they're, they're making money and they're, they're good at what they do and the business is growing. And then someone comes along and says, hey, we'd like you to design a website that, for this particular thing. And the Christian says, ooh, ah, that's, it's legal, but it seems a little, as they say today, a little sketch. Seems a little, I don't know if I, it's appropriate if I should be promoting that if I want to design a website to that. But he said, you know, we've got this partnership and that's not horrible and okay, fine, we'll do that. And then to go, something else along the way comes like that. And then they, someone comes along with a large contract offer that says, if you will design these websites that deal with this topic, and it's not illegal, but it's immoral. And now you can just hear all the rationalization in the Christian's mind, Right? Uh, I, I'm not actually promoting that. I'm just doing my job. I, I, I'm contractually bound because we have this partnership and I don't have the right just to veto this and all that kind of, You can see how somebody could now start doing the dance in their own head to do things they may regret big time later because they have this contractual agreement. And of course, marriage is, is that way as well. If, you, if you're a believer and you enter into the marriage covenant with an unbeliever, there's going to be temptation there to go down a bad path. The Jews are exhibit A of what happens when God's people enter into these kinds of alliances. In chapter 2 of Judges, verse 11 says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Paul says, come out from among them. Don't enter into these alliances. So I don't know how that applies to you. I don't know what temptations are out there for you, but it's worth pondering. Where might I be tempted to engage with darkness in such a way that I could be led astray? The Israelites did it, and it cost them significantly. Now let's go back to Joshua chapter 20. So that's the hard news, that's the bad news, that's the, the challenge. This is some good news. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation, may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of the city. They shall take him into that city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. Then the manslayer 
shall return to his own city and to his own house, to the city from which he fled. And then he goes on and describes these six cities that were called the cities of refuge. You know, we hear a lot in the political realm these days, the, these worms, uh, worms, these words, <laughs> might have been a Freudian slip, political, worm, I don't know, probably. Sanctuary cities, refugees, asylum, that kind of thing. It's easy to miss that the, the concept of a sanctuary city is a biblical concept. So remove what's going on now in our political system. I'm not suggesting that's a good parallel, but the idea of a place when you're being pursued and you don't believe you are rightfully being pursued, a place to go and find refuge, it's, it's a biblical concept. When the Old Covenant started, it was the, the, the altar at the tabernacle. If someone was trying to flee from someone's wrath, they could go and grab the altar, and they weren't allowed to be apprehended at that point. Now, they could still be tried and found guilty, but at least at that moment, you had somewhere to go and grab hold and say, wait, wait, I, I need to plead my case. But as the nation enters into this promised land, you could be days and days journey from the tabernacle. And the avenger might catch you before you got there. And so God in his grace said, set up these six sanctuary cities scattered throughout the whole region so that someone has a place to go. Have you ever seen some of those old westerns when the bad guy is running from the good guys, or sometimes it's a good guy running from the bad guys, and he runs into a church? And there was just sort of this understood situation where the guy goes into the church building, nobody gets to touch him. Right? Well, that's the, the kind of idea that we're talking about here. So God sets these cities of refuge up. I want to go back, so turn back with me to Numbers chapter 35, because there we get a little more detail about how this was going to play out. Numbers chapter 35, verse 9 begins this way. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. Have you noticed that word several times now? Unintentionally. The cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger. Uh, not Iron Man. Not the Hulk. This is, the, this is a different kind of avenger. From the avenger so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. The cities which you are to give shall be six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and then the other three. Skipping down to verse 16. So he mentions unintentional. Now he's going to talk about intentional here for a moment. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he will die, as a result, he died. He is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. See, God knows how we are. If he just said the rock, somebody would use a stick and say, well, I didn't use a rock. So he lists several things. Look, the, the point is, if you've committed murder, you are to suffer the consequences. This is pulling back from Genesis chapter 9, right after the flood. This is before the law of Moses, so it's not unique to Israel. And God made it very clear, 
that murder is a capital offense. Look what he said in Genesis chapter 9. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made men. We must be as Christians pro-capital punishment for murder, for first degree premeditated murder. Because God's law says, God's requirement is, if you take a man's life, you forfeit your own. Because God values man so much, he's made every man in the image of God, you have no right to take someone's life. If you do, you will suffer the consequences with your own death. So now God is bringing that principle to bear for the Israelites, and he's making it very clear if someone hates somebody else and he kills him, whether with a rock or a stone, uh, I guess that's the same thing, a piece of a stick, uh, whatever, if he kills him premeditated, he must die. He goes on and says, verse 19, the blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. Blood avenger was the first of kin. So if I'm the first of kin to the person who's murdered, I'm to go take the life of the murderer. He shall put him to death when he meets him. If he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him, lying in wait, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He's a murderer. The blood avenger shall murder, put the murderer to death when he meets him. You see, the blood avenger has no choice. It's sin for the first of kin here to not bring about capital punishment to the murderer. That's God's law for Israel. That's the requirement. Murder was a serious thing in the Old Covenant. It still is in the New Covenant. It is since Genesis 9. It's wrong and it's abhorrent. But what about when you accidentally kill somebody? It happens. If we only had Genesis 9, you think, well, does that man give up his life? even if it was an accident? Not in the law of Moses, it wasn't. Verse 22. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait or with any deadly object of stone and without seeing it dropped on him so that he died. I know, this sounds kind of funny. Now, how do you throw something at somebody accidentally? How do you drop a stone on somebody accidentally? I, it's got to be the kind of thing where you're pushing the stone, but you don't realize there's somebody down there. You're throwing things, but you don't realize there's somebody out there. I mean, we hear this every now and then. Someone is out hunting, and somebody else is out there hunting, and they're not wearing bright enough orange, right? And somebody shoots, thinking he's shooting at a deer or something, and ends up shooting another hunter out there. Well, he wasn't trying to kill the other hunter. It was an accident. He didn't know. Then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled. So here what God is saying to the people is if it was an accident, if you were not being malicious, if you were not intending to harm and you harm someone, you, you, you see a guy in the street if you are angry at that guy and you hit the accelerator, you're guilty of murder. If 
you run him over. If you're not angry at the guy and in panic, you think you're hitting the brake, but you hit the accelerator and you run him over, you're not guilty of murder. You didn't mean to hurt him. That wasn't the point. In that case, you could flee to one of these cities and you were safe there until the congregation brought you out and said, okay, were there any witnesses? He goes on to talk about witnesses. There has to be at least two witnesses. The accusers do not count. It's got to be somebody else that saw it and says, yes, that was premeditated. He was trying to do that. And if there are witnesses, then you'd be turned over to the avenger. But if nobody can say, yeah, I saw it, I know it's premeditated, or if people saw it and said, yeah, it sure looked like an accident to me, then the man was safe. The avenger could not touch him. But what if you did it on purpose? You were to be executed, right? We've talked through this series and many other series. We've talked about what the book of Hebrews says as he compares the old covenant to the new covenant. We're reading the old covenant here, right? The writer of Hebrews says we are in a better covenant. The new covenant that we are part of is not that one. He says we're in a better covenant with better what? Promises. These are the promises of the old covenant. If you accidentally kill someone, you will not die. If you intentionally kill someone, you will die. Those are the promises of the old covenant. When we come to the new covenant, what are we told? Intentional or unintentional, there's forgiveness. In the old covenant, you might say like this, for the one who accidentally takes another life, there is therefore now no condemnation in the city of refuge. But if you took his life on purpose, there is condemnation. What does the new covenant say? There is therefore now no condemnation for all sinners who are in Christ Jesus. When we flee to Christ, when we come to Christ like the city of refuge, when we run to him and say, I have done wrong, intentionally, unintentionally, both sins are covered in the new covenant. Now, if it's a crime against the state, you will still be judged by the state and rightfully so. If you commit murder, then the state has a duty before God to bring about punishment. But before God himself, if you are in Christ, the new covenant says there's no condemnation, intentional or unintentional. That's a better covenant, amen? It's a better covenant than the old covenant. Look at the next phrase in verse 25, the last part of it. And he, the one who flees to the city of refuge, and he shall live in it, in the city, until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. When the high priest died, then that man was free to leave the city of refuge and the, the avenger could no longer touch him. So you see there are consequences, even for accidental killing. You go to the city of refuge and now you have to stay in the city of refuge. The avenger can't touch you, but you have to stay there until the death of the high priest. And I know what you're thinking. 
You have an immediate prayer crisis, don't you? Some of you are not tracking very quickly. Should I be, is it okay to pray for the death of the high priest so that I can be released from the city of refuge and go back home? Do you see where this is pointing? Who's the high priest of the new covenant? The Lord Jesus Christ. He has died. We're free. In Christ, we are free. He suffered the consequences. He suffered the condemnation and the wrath of God on our behalf. He died. So when we flee to him, the scripture says we die with him. His resurrection is our resurrection, and we are free. We are forgiven. We're not required to just stay here. It's done. Because the anointed one has already died. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. That's what we've been singing about, the man of sorrows who took God's wrath on our behalf. And then one final warning, verse 26. But if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Do you see what's going on there? The man who accidentally killed somebody flees to the city of refuge. He's safe from the avenger. He's safe from justice. He's safe from condemnation. But if he goes outside the city before the high priest dies, then the avenger has the right to kill him, and the avenger is not in sin. See what that means? See how that points to Christ? Our only refuge from the wrath of God, our only refuge from justice and condemnation that we deserve is to stay in Christ. It's to hold fast to the truth of Christ. If you run from that, if you flee from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where are you gonna go to be forgiven? What possible hope is there for someone who is not in Christ? Nothing, just the certain expectation of God's judgment. We must hold fast. We must stay in the city of refuge, who is Jesus Christ. We must cling to him and only to him. One more verse from the writer of Hebrews. Okay, a few verses from the writer of Hebrews. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently awaited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath was given as confirmation as the end of every dispute. In the same way. So God made the promise to Abraham and fulfilled the promise to Abraham, and he swore to Abraham he would keep his promise. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, when God says that he can't, he can't change it, he, he doesn't lie, and he swore, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you more descendants than there are stars in the sky, and he kept that promise. 
God says to you, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be forgiven. If you take refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ, you are not condemned. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever. Our high priest died and he came back to life and he lives forever to intercede for everyone who takes refuge in Christ. That's the gospel we preach. That's what we have to say to the world. You are condemned. You have done intentional sins and you've done unintentional sins and God will rightly judge you for all of it, but there is a place of refuge for you. Call upon his name and he'll forgive you. And for we who have done that, this is the hope, this is the anchor for our soul. Not being good enough, not going to church enough, not reading our Bible enough, all those things are good. But Jesus Christ, dead and raised, he's our refuge. He's our anchor. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know this. Sometimes we look elsewhere for protection. We look elsewhere for hope. We look elsewhere to calm our conscience. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ sprinkles our conscience clean. So, Lord, I pray for any, anyone in this room, anyone who's watching online, if our hearts are troubled, if we're weighed down knowing our sin, we're weighed down knowing we have done things unintentionally, but it's caused harm to others. Would you remind us, not just in our head, but all the way to our heart, that you forgive us. Would you cleanse our consciences yet again? Remind us that as long as we are in the city, the avenger cannot hurt us. Would you grant us the persevering faith to, to cling to Christ as our hope all the way to the end? For we ask in Jesus' name.